Our scripture reading this morning, it's in your bulletin, it's on page 5. This is Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 to 24. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Later, I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praise God because of me. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Omari, for leading us in worship, except for the comment about not paying the pastor. That was everything else is just fine. So we're in our second uh, uh, sermon in a sermon series on Galatians, and uh, and Galatians is a strange book uh, uh, that uh, that the first two chapters here that we're going to be in are talk about uh, biography of of who Paul is and what he's about, and uh, and so we'll, we're going to talk about that for the, for these next few weeks. But uh, but as I was listening to NPR yesterday, I think it was maybe the day before. Uh, I was intrigued about a conversation because of how it connects to the book of Galatians. Um, they were having a conversation about uh, Vladimir Putin and George Bush and uh, whether we're going to have missile. Uh, George Bush had put forth a possibility of a missile, missile defense shield in Europe. And uh, Russia flatly said, no, we're totally against this. And it started to cause this kind of tension between the U.S. and um and Russia, and uh, they were supposed to meet after their G8 time, and uh, uh, and then uh, then they weren't able to do that. And I got, you know, I was thinking there's going to be some type of escalation in terms of this tenseness or coldness. And I had thoughts of Cold War again, and was thinking we need to make a, a you know, another Red Dawn movie or something like that, or, or the day after, I don't know, just this kind of Cold War feel. Um, uh, uh, bad time. Uh, I love that movie, by the way, but. Uh, uh, but two things happened to delay it. One was um, President Bush called uh, Vladimir Putin and said, I am uh, ill. I won't be able to make it to our meeting afterward. Um, and then uh, after that, um, uh, the, uh, uh, Vladimir Putin actually said, um, 
hey, forget doing it in Europe. Why don't you do it in Azerbaijan? Okay, so that's interesting enough. That's kind of uh, 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 intriguing or whatever if you're into that kind of stuff, if you're a pundit or a reporter. But here's what was interesting to me. They got together. um, uh, uh, They had the pundits on NPR, and they were saying this. Just flatly, do you believe that George Bush was actually ill? That was the question. The second question was, do you believe that Putin is serious when he offers to have the shield in Russia. What is it asking? What's fundamentally happening here? These are our world leaders in charge of land and life. And our question is, can we trust them? Can I believe the words that come from their mouth? Now, everybody's going, yeah, I don't know if I'm, that's what I'm asking. Uh, but, but, but how interesting is that? That we're going, can I trust you? Can I know? That's what's happening in Galatia here. A group of people called Judaizers, uh, which is a made-up theological word that's not actually in the scriptures, but it's the kind of word we use, um, is spreading around a rumor about Paul. You can't trust him. He's not the real deal follower of Jesus or real deal leader of Jesus. He's a second-rate prophet with a second-rate message and a third-rate character. Don't believe him. You see, what NPR folks are asking and uh, of the two leaders and what Galatians, the people of Galatia are asking of Paul is, are you telling the truth? Can I trust you? And not just trusting your veracity, that, that your words that you speak are actually accurate. But more than that, are you a person I can trust? Is your character trustworthy? Not just the content of your words, but are you that kind of person? And now it really feels like that may connect with us. We live in a world of false promises. Uh, we are advertising uh, or we are advertised lies about being thinner or richer all the time. And more poignantly, we believe them. And in our believing them, we get hurt. And if you've hung out in churches any, then you have probably believed some religious stuff too. And some of it true and some of it not. Stephanie Dempsey and I were, uh, was, were meeting and she was telling me about this, uh, this week uh, about a disturbing PBS documentary about, uh, Jim Jones. Sorry, Stephanie, I didn't tell you that I was going to say this beforehand. Uh, but, uh, um, about this cult and, and if anybody knows about Jim Jones, it's, it ended up in this horrible massacre. But there were a few survivors and, uh, one in particular, but it seemed like most do not believe in God anymore at all. Not Jones or Jesus or Buddha or Baha'i. They have given up on trusting at all. And then that even hits more home with us. Maybe not to the same degree as being abused by a cult or abused by a person. But don't we have trouble too? As we're injured by these kind of lies. Con artists. uh, Good-hearted people even. But naive. People who promise the world or promise a ton but but end up giving you a thimble full. It throws us into a tailspin. I'm trying to teach Carver how to swim. And we were in the big pool, which is all four and a half feet, you know. Uh, and I'm, and I, I'm looking him as deeply in the eyes as I possibly can say, do you think daddy can keep you up? 
do you trust me that I will hold you up? And I wasn't even going to do any kind of tricks like were done to me, like you'd give him the dunk or anything like that. I was really going to, I really was. Do you trust me? Do you hold up? Yes, daddy, I trust you. Yes, yes, yes. And I switch hands and it's, ah! Blood, you know, being ripped out from my veins. Can I trust what you're saying? Those words right there, those actions that you do, can I trust your words? Or back to the religious stuff, can you trust your Bibles? Can you? You know the Galatians and the Charlatans are the same way. Can you trust Paul? Can you trust his words? A fundamental question that we have, given all the ways that scriptures have been abused and used to hurt people, to injure people, can you trust them? Can you? Can you trust his character or his authority or his writing? Paul answers the Judaizers by putting forth an argument. An argument that he is, in fact, an apostle. And we'll get to that word in a little bit. Which, as we'll discuss in a minute, is a claim of authority and character. And what I want to do is spend some time on that argument. But before we can get to the argument, we have to do some asides because we have to decide what we have to say what an apostle is. We need to talk a little bit more about the Judaizers. We talk a little bit more about the Bible. So we have some asides, and then we'll have the argument, and then the most important question: So what? The application. What does that mean for us? So what I'm going to do is walk through that um, uh, the asides first. And and you guys, this is a little bit more teachy. Than preachy, not to put a big divide between those two things, but this can be a little more teachy than preachy than we, we normally do. Pastor Howard and I have talked about it, and this first section of, of, of Galatians is going to be like that. It's just going to be a little bit more teachy, a little bit more Sunday schooly. Um, not that that's a bad thing at all, but a little bit different than what you're used to uh, at Christ Central. And if you're new to Christ Central, then you'll just think it's like this all the time. Uh, anyway, so let's do an aside on the book. The book has six chapters: two, two, and two. Two on biography, two on theology. And two on ethics. Biology, theology, and ethics. And of course, they all mix a little bit. But um, And each week, we're going to do a half a chapter. So we're doing four weeks on biography right now. And then we'll do four weeks on theology and four weeks on ethics. And what Paul's doing in this week and next is he's establishing his apostleship, which we'll get to in a second. By this week, he's claiming his independence, meaning that he's not, it's not a derived apostleship from, from somebody else. He's not been taught, um, uh, but, he, but that he's had a personal, even private apostolic apostle revelation directly from Jesus. That's what he does this week. But next week, so he doesn't look like he's just this lone ranger. He comes back and says, and that private revelation is in harmony with the other people, the greater church and the other apostles. Though I didn't learn it from it, that they're in harmony together. Now, remember the Judaizers were undermining his ability to speak God's word to the church in Galatia. This is a traveling pastor, if you will, who's really trying to bring God's word to bear on his community. Paul was being disrespected, really disrespected. And so he had to make this argument forward because uh, he knew that if they didn't ex- respect him, they wouldn't respect his teaching. And it was important for them to respect that. So he lost some street cred or maybe he never had the street cred, but he had to get it. And he had to get it because of the Judaizers. And let's talk a little bit about that. Judaizers are Jewish Christians. And I put the air quote in Christians because uh, Paul, as you'll read further, is like these guys have so missed the mark of what Christianity is, 
that to call them Christians is a little bit unfair. The term heresy is a term that, um, that, that theologians throw around, uh, which says you miss the mark too much. Now, that's not everybody misses the mark when it comes to Christianity. We never get it. God is inexhaustible. His revelation is, uh, is clear about the clear things, and it's a little bit hidden about the hidden things. And so sometimes we're all missing some point. But we're talking about missing the entire boat, where you're missing Jesus and what he's doing. And, uh, and Paul says that about these guys. So um, the Judaizers are a heretical party in the early church, which held that uh, in addition to faith in Christ... Christians must conform to Jewish practices too. So everybody who just joined here by conversion uh, uh, would have to be circumcised, would have to participate in Old Testament law, we'd keep Shabbat, Sabbath, we'd keep Sabbath completely, we'd have to run through all the same Passover meals and other things like that. That there was, that, that, that to be in Christ was also to be in Moses. You had to, you had to have both. So it's Jesus plus this kind of mosaic world and tradition and community that must must be a part of it. And and, and in one sense, that sounds kind of cool. You know, there ain't nothing wrong with Moses. It was God's people for the longest time. Um, So you think, well, more, holier, that's good. We can just kind of roll like that. But for for the Bible, Paul says no. Christ alone is our salvation and nothing can be added to it. In fact, there's a, another strand where, where Paul actually uh, seems to be saying the Judaizers aren't noble at all in pursuing greater holiness. But in fact, there's such a rising tide of pro-Jewish sentiment uh, and kind of bro- Jewish nationality. These people called the Zealots would come out and they were, they were warriors and fighters and the Zealot dagger. You've heard of Zealous? The, the term zealous, that's actually a term used for people who are really uh, uh, fighting for, um, for kind of the national identity of Israel. And uh, they were so strong um, at the time that, that to have any kind of non-Jewish sympathy was to show weakness and show like you may be a sellout. Um, and it wasn't Jewish enough. So they're saying that, you, that he was saying that because Paul did, said you didn't have to necessarily be uh, circumcised, then... Anybody who is sympathetic to that, it's actually a Jewish sellout. So Paul, now remember, Paul is actually a Jew. He's a person called to reach Gentiles. But he says this. The big beef is Jesus plus theology is a problem. Jesus is, Jesus, wait, that didn't sound right. A theology that says Jesus plus anything is a problem. You can't have a Jesus plus theology that says, um, okay, what you need to do is accept Jesus as uh, as your Savior and Lord, follow him in all your ways. And if you give 10%, then 10% and Jesus equals salvation. No pluses in the middle. Jesus equals salvation. Lots of other stuff follow that. Obedience and a new life and a heart and want things, do want to do stuff like crazy, like crazy stuff like worship and all these other things and give your money away and all that other stuff. But there's no addition point before it. So Jesus plus theologies, Jesus plus, not theology, you know what I'm saying. Theologies that are Jesus plus something, uh, uh, are a real problem. They, uh, they, um, they undermine what's going on about what, who Jesus is and why he's Lord. Not Jesus plus circumcision and keeping of the Old Testament law. Not any of that. So what they're saying is for forgiveness of sin, sins, to spend eternity in heaven, to be saved, you need Jesus plus the Old Testament law. And you guys, we do this today. We've done it throughout history. I, 
I think St. Peter's Basilica in Rome was one of the most gorgeous churches ever created by human, be- by human beings. It's the most amazing thing in the world. And it was built on people selling their indulgence, selling indul- by them selling indulgences, which means you pay your way into heaven. There was a little jingle that said, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Jesus plus a little money for St. Peter's equals salvation. But we do it yesterday. Forget, that's just that's kind of dogging the Catholics. I don't want to do that. Let's dog the Protestants. I'm watching TV yesterday, and you could get your prayer rug. You could get all sorts of stuff. Thousand bucks will bring millions of people to Jesus. Same thing, Jesus plus. Your love offering will bring you in, bring you and others in. But forget Jesus plus money. What about Jesus plus status? like circumcision or, or deeds, uh, uh, like the, the, the rituals of the Old Testament. Or Jesus plus being really a conservative family or a liberal family or a Presbyterian or, God forbid that, but less Presbyterian, hopefully, uh, more hip or more traditional or anything that makes you right with Jesus besides Jesus is a problem in Paul's theology. And I think he's absolutely right. Jesus alone is our Savior. And that's what he's arguing for. Jesus plus Anything, even spirit-filled living, anything that makes you right with God other than Jesus' sacrifice is a problem. And this is why we sing in our hymns, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless come to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I'll die. I got nothing, you got everything, or we're in trouble. Okay, one more aside, and that's what an apostle is. Apostle, aside on the Bible, aside on the Judaizers, and the theological conflict there, and then what's an apostle? One holy Catholic and apostolic church. You hear us say that. We actually said in our own creed today, uh, uh, given to the prophets and the apostles, the word, the revelation, given to the prophet and the apostles. That's kind of a church nerdy word. Nobody, no one uses that. I mean, when do you rock, you go rocking on, you know, you never use the word apostle ever. In fact, in fact, in, in, in early Greek, apostle is basically a New Testament word even. So it was a church nerdy word then even. Uh, and, uh, and so we use this word, um, and what does it mean? Well, what does it mean to be apostolic? What it means to be apostle? Um, apostle means, on a very broad sense, someone sent with a special message or a commission. In the New Testament, apostles established churches, exposed error. I'm reading from some notes here. Defending the, the truth of the gospel. Some were empowered by the Holy Spirit to perform miracles, and they were to preach the gospel. But according to the Dictionary of Paul and his letters, which is one of the standard texts, an apostle, in the technical sense, is a person who has seen with their eyes the risen Christ and has been commissioned by Christ to proclaim his news authoritatively. See with your eyes, not see with your heart. See with your eyes like flesh and blood. I see him. See the risen Christ. And that same Christ, whether audibly or by laying on of hands or by, uh, by, by some other way, a dream or something like, says, you're an apostle. Go forth. Be commissioned in my name to go bring the gospel to bear. This means, in that technical sense, that there aren't any more apostles. Do you understand that? Because they all died. We hadn't all seen Jesus in the risen form anymore. Now, I know some churches use the term apostles, but I'm using it in the most strict sense. And if they mean it like that, then we probably have some issues to talk about what, what, what they've seen and what they haven't seen. But, um, but um, uh, sorry, I didn't mean that to be a joke. Um, uh, 
Um, but, uh, but to be an apostle is that. And so Paul actually even says that, that he's one of the later apostles because he actually saw Jesus later than, uh, the other people had saw Jesus. So had seen Jesus. So Paul and Barnabas are kind of these later apostles. Um, and so to be apostolic is it to be in the vein of the apostles. One holy Catholic and apostolic church is what that means. It's a special group of people. I don't know, 50? I don't know what the number is, but not many. A group of people that that were there and commissioned and given authority, hands laid on them, special gifting to navigate the rocky beginning and the formation of Christianity. That's their job. Okay? So that's what he's claiming. Okay, let's get off the sides. Let's go straight to the argument. I hope I didn't offend anybody there. Um, okay, let's go to the argument. Verses 11 and 12 in your, in your bulletin. I want to know, brothers, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Here's this first point in his argument. The gospel was revealed to me directly. The gospel was revealed to me directly. He was given the gospel. He received a revelation. I like another translation. I certify you, brothers, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. The gospel was, uh, to, to use a, a funny way that they construct that sentence, the gospel was gospeled to him in verse 11. It's a statement of source, you understand. Whose gospel is it? It was the Lord's. It was Jesus' given to him. Where's the source? Nobody witnessed to Paul. No door-to-door things. Versus the Galatians who they actually did witness to. He didn't watch the Passion 15 times and then convert. Didn't see Ben-Hur when he was little. He didn't go to a Christian concert and come down front with his eyes closed and his head bowed. There's not mocking all this. I'm just saying this is not what happened. It wasn't a tent revival. He didn't get a tract or hear a great sermon. He didn't see Billy Graham or Franklin Graham or any of the Grahams. No mission trip. No human discipled him. No consultation. Jesus actually converted him, according to Acts 9, on a road to Damascus where Jesus actually helps him see by blinding him in his arrogance. He's totally against the gospel and Jesus blinds him. And slowly he recovers his sight. And in his recovery of sight, he converts. Well, he converts on the road and uh, slowly learns to, to follow Jesus. Martin Luther sums it up by saying, Paul means to say that he learned his gospel not in the usual and accepted manner through the agency of men by hearing, reading, or writing. He reads the gospel by special revelation directly from Jesus Christ. As uh, St. Luke finishes an account of the incident in the ninth chapter of the book of Acts, Arise, said Christ to Paul, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Okay. Now, it's really interesting. He says this. I got this direct. But... And that's really good, nice and helpful for people like um, uh, who, who want to see kind of an authority picture. Hey, where'd this come from? That's really important. But for you skeptics out there, he actually says, and I've got an alibi. So in verses 16 through, say, 22, look what he does. I didn't consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those 
who were apostles before I was. But I went immediately to Arabia and later to Damascus. Then after three years, I went to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I'm writing you is no lie. Later, I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. Basically, what he's saying is, look, here is where I've been. You can go ask people anywhere. You can go to Damascus. You can go see who it, you can go ask John, if uh, John, J- Jesus' brother, if I was there. You can go ask Peter. I, you can check the record. Go and check and see if I have derived my apostleship somewhere else. John Stott says, he went to Jerusalem after three years, stayed for two weeks, and hung out with two disciples. It would be ludicrous to think that he obtained his gospel from the Jerusalem apostles. He's declaring an independence from them, saying, no, I got this directly from Jesus, y'all. I got it directly from Jesus. Now, you understand, don't you, what's going on here? You got to think, this is a little bit nuts. Because if anybody comes to you in our midst and says, listen, God told me, exactly what to tell you what I'm telling you now. You should be a little bit, and they don't read some right straight from the Bible, then you should be a little bit nervous because there's some control in that. There's a whole bunch of stuff that can go wrong and human people can't really handle that unless they're very much gifted in a very specific way. The Galatians are especially a little bit uh, nervous about this because the Judaizers are still whispering in their ears. I know it's, uh, 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 he's saying, I know that this is kind of wild, but I make a vow on my life. I assure you before God that what I'm writing you is no lie. Now look, that is, we did vows, man. We just got through judges, y'all. Remember all those crazy vows that were going on? This is actually another vow. It's another vow. And he says, if I'm lying, God will kill me. Exactly. Exactly. Now, now I know we had that little laugh about Giuliani and the fact that he was worried that the lightning was coming for him and all that other stuff. But uh, y'all don't know that one. Never mind. Okay. Um, we are not, we're a pretty modernistic people. We don't think God's going to do anything like that. He ain't killing anybody. I don't think that's good, by the way. Uh, I'm not defending that point. But let me assure you that the ancient Near Easterners listening to this vow believe that God will either will kill them if he kill him if he's lying. This is better than our modernistic version of it, which is like a you know a, a, a lie detector, you know something like that where we can really know. Um, this is saying no 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 he's staking his very life on it. It's I swear on my mother's grave. It's whatever. I mean it's his, it's a, a sticks and stone. No 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 no. What's that? Stick a needle in my eye if I holler. No, no I don't remember what they do. Stick a needle in my eye. Some oath, some promise. Um, and they're going, Dad, gum. We should listen to this. He is either a messenger of God, or he's a maniac. He is an apostle, or he's an antichrist, and he's going to die. That's what's going on here. But he brings this itinerary and says, No, listen, y'all, Jesus taught me. But the more important lesson that he does, the more important argument is this. It's not that Jesus spoke to me or that Jesus revealed the gospel to me, but that he revealed the gospel in me. Look at 13 through 16. 
For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Um, But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gospels, I didn't consult any man. And then in 23, they only heard the report. This is the only thing they heard. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. What Paul does here is not give alibi, but he gives the story and the compelling beauty of his conversion. You don't believe me? Look at me. Do you know what I was? He was a hater of this movement of Christianity. Acts 9 tells us so. Well, in verse 13 it says, Intensely I persecuted the church of God. Paul was the keeper of the firing squad. It was stones, but the firing squad against Stephen's stoning. The scripture tells us that when, when Stephen blasphemed by saying he believed in the Lord Christ, that he was the follower of his, that when he blasphemed by doing that, that Paul and his henchmen brought him forth and threw stones at him. And it says that Paul is sitting there watching it happen. Paul then was called Saul. But Saul is there giving orders for the stoning of his death. Paul was a Jewish jihadist by any stretch of the imagination. That's what he was. He was there to sack Christianity. Chrysostom says that Saul was trying to extinguish, annihilate this new movement that was coming. And now he's an apostle. And he's not done. He's like, you guys want to follow the Judaizers? You want to be Jewish enough? I think of all like black enough or white enough or all these kind of other enoughs that you are, Christian enough. He's like, you want to talk? I got your Jewishness. I'm as Jewish as they come. Is what he rolls, he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond my many, many Jews of my own age, and I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. You want to do Jewishness? I got that. I got that. My mother had a, my son is an honor student at the Jewish synagogue on the back of her buggy. (laughs) Brilliant, unwavering. If the Judaizers could have had him, they would have had a spokesman like nobody's business, a true Pharisee of farriers, a strong articulator of all the things that were necessary to be both Jewish and Christian, but more Jewish than Christian, subverting the gospel itself. This is ridiculous. You understand what, what, what he's describing here in his conversion. This is like a boy from the south side of Chicago supposed to reach First Church Augusta. It's not supposed to happen that way. This is a Pollyanna lemonade at a lemons person reaching Kurt Cobain's 1990 Seattle. It's not supposed to happen. It's flipped all up and around and down. He's pointing to something more beautiful. I am the one that killed Christians. And now I'm proclaiming as one with authority as a Christian. I was wrong in my zeal. And just in case you're wondering if he's being haughty, he is not. Because he says this in verse 15, but when God, who has set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, or God set me apart by birth and called me from his grace, by his grace, he's saying, at birth, I was born for this. If you think I was good enough to be it, that's ridiculous. I was set apart for this at birth. I don't know the miraculous understanding of why God would do it this way. I have no idea why this is the way it is. But before I was born in my mother's womb, claiming a very uh, formula that's claimed for prophets in the Old Testament, 
God put his hand on me to do this. And it wasn't my goodness. I was about to grow up and start killing Christians. How could it be my goodness? It's not my goodness at all. It wasn't my prayers, my fasting, my keeping of the law. It was God's grace, as it says in the scripture, alone that called me out into this. Heaping mercy upon mercy, forgiving my sins, replenishing me. And as he gives grace and grace upon grace. And then, can you believe it? He actually called me to preach to the people I was trying to kill. Can you believe it? It must be. A compelling vision. If you don't buy the argument about him actually receiving uh, Jesus' words by revelation, if you don't buy the timeline argument about where he was and that he didn't receive uh, the visions by some kind of Tony Robbins apostolic workshop, then believe, then believe this, that this was a man who killed the very people he was trying to now foster. What was the one thing that was known about him? He was the one who's now bringing life and love to the people he was trying to destroy. And all this makes me think of is the song that we sang very first, which, by the way, was awesome. You guys, it was beautiful this morning. And that's John Newton's Amazing Grace. I don't know if you all know who John Newton is, but John Newton, in his own words, was a dastardly dude. I think uh, in good English, 17th century ways, said something like, uh, where did I write that? The wretch he's talking about, he was flagrantly profane. That sounds bad. He participated in the slave trade. So blind and stupid was I at this time, he speaks of himself. I made no reflection. I sought no direction in what had happened. Like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed, I was governed by present appearances and passions and looked no further. But later, God, and I believe God from the foundations of the earth, sent a storm to John Newton and and uh, a literal storm at sea where he was shaken about and he was like, oh my goodness, what's happening? Even one of his own crew members was lost at sea and he was like, wait, hold up. I need to think about this a little bit. What, what's happening? And that event in a process of a year or so afterward, he became transformed. He was converted and he became a Anglican priest back in his home country. He became a priest. Not just a priest, he become, became the most famous priest in England, really. One of them, not the hierarchical highest priest, but the one who everybody went to. And everybody learned from him as a man of peace. He was one who had dissenters, you need to know church history at the time, but all sorts of, it's not that different than now, all sorts of people fussing and fighting. They'd all still come to John Newton on all sides of the fence and come and listen to him. He was responsible for William Wilberforce. Wilberforce was going, hey, look. I think I'm going to be a priest. I'm going to get out of this politics stuff. And he's like, no, no, no. Serve God where you are. And for the next 25 years, they together, mostly Wilberforce, but with, uh, um, with Newton's encouragement, took down the slave trade in, in Britain. Amazing, amazing work that had been done through this man. If you don't believe the testimonies of these things, if you don't believe that Jesus actually spoke to him and changed him, believe the transformed nature of the man himself. Jesus is revealing himself not just to Paul, but in Paul. And he does it in us too. They only heard this report that the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. So what? Verse 24. And they praised God because of me. You see what he does at the end? He flips it. 
He's spending all his time and energy doing biography. Why? Because he doesn't want them ultimately focused on him. He wants them ultimately focused on God. He's not trying to, to, to do his resume. If he would have done his resume, he could have told about all the conversions that he had and all the places he went. And he could have stacked his record and looked really good and said, you know, bam, look at all this. I got 5,000 conversions. What you got? You know, he didn't do that. His testimony is, I've been changed and people have been changed because of who God is, not because of who I am. This means very simple things. It's going to sound weird. But you can trust your Bibles. Same thing as the Galatians. There are 13 letters from Paul there. He's saying, same argument. You can trust them. You should know this. I wrote this down in a journal a long time ago. Because I'm not one who's always trusted the Scriptures. It's an opiate for the masses written so you and I, and that's a Marxist statement, uh, got it from Marx, you and I can feel better about our lots in life. Conjured up stories and fables to console ourselves in a terrible and unfair world. That's what the Bible is that I wrote. Pious frauds, genuine and sincere religious priests who when they wrote it really thought they were doing a good thing. But their less saith the Lord's were nothing but a... a, a, a a literary device. Priests wrote their, these ideas down knowing that it'd be a good thing. Or in worse days, a book of deception, tool of the patriarch rulers whose intent was to keep women down or, shack, or a shackle in the hands of the social and racial elite, binding all those into castes underneath them for the love of power and money it was created as a weapon of injustice. <laughs> the problem is that all those things are true and they have been done. The problem is, is that, that that's a very easy thing to say to scriptures. Thomas Jefferson attacks Paul at one point saying he's a second-rate apostle with a second-hand gospel and, a, and the first corrupter of the doctrine of Jesus. A hundred years ago, it was really popular to talk about a wedge between Jesus and Paul and how, uh, uh, and how Paul messed it all up. Uh, as Lord Beaverbrook said, Paul was trying to understand Jesus in the flickering light of his limited intelligence and certainly restricted research because clearly 1,500 years later, we know better and have better research 1,500 years away from the event. Incapable by nature of understanding the spirit of the master is what he said. What historical snobbery. But now most scholars don't even consider the wedge much of anything anymore. But then a friend, and this is at seminary. I'm going up to seminary not actually believing that the scriptures are inerrant or true or, or, or something you can rely on. And a friend of me, Greg Thompson, the guy who actually laid hand, was part of laying hands on me and gave me my charge, said, you need to account for your skepticism. Show me a place where it's wrong. Show me a place where it's a pious fraud. Show me a place where it's, it is actual patriarchy and not that, not that someone just used it as patriarchy. Show me a place where it's evil and, wrong, and, 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 and used as shackles. It, not used as shackles, as it actually is a shackle. Show me that or hush your mouth. I have to tell you, I've struggled and fought and wrestled and worked through what the scriptures is most of my life. I am a trained skeptic. 
Thank you, Davidson College. (laughs) I've been rewarded as a skeptic. And I can tell you this. First, let me tell you, if you're struggling, join the struggle with me. I'm glad to talk with you about it. I'm glad to meet with lunch with, for lunch with you, talk about the veracity, the truthfulness of the Scriptures, and the character of the Scriptures. But I'm convinced more and more than ever that our Scriptures, this Bible in our hands, is true, is trustworthy, it's transforming, it changes us. In some miraculous way, pre-modern, who knows, on non-science. I don't know how it all fits together, but I believe it's true. I believe it's true, and I believe it's beautiful. And it's making not just the story of Paul, but so many of our stories here into this incredible picture of a redeemed person. At the end of his life, and I could be talking about Paul or uh, John Newton here, Paul says this, and I'll end with a John Newton quote. Paul says this. I'm a sinner, and Jesus is, you're a sinner, or we are sinners, and Jesus is the Savior of sinners. We can trust the messenger and the message, because he says, I'm the chief of those sinners, Paul says. That transformed life speaks truth to us, rightly. Newton was about ready to retire in his old age, because he was uh, losing his memory. And he was a little stubborn, which is a good thing, I guess. I guess he had to be stubborn. He's going to help take down the slave trade. Um, he says this, almost, a, almost in his dying months, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner, and Jesus is a great Savior. I am a great sinner, And Jesus is a great Savior. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's the story of John Newton. And that's the story and the beginning story of what Galatians is doing, hopefully even in our midst. Let's pray. Jesus, we do thank you. Thank you for your goodness and your love. I pray that you would uh, would come to us. You would um, change us, transform us, that you'd help us believe your scriptures, which are so hard sometimes in our modernistic approaches to things, Lord, that you would um, you would encourage those struggling to come forth and talk with Pastor Howard or me, uh, that you would um, that you would come for, that they would come forth, that you spirit would come forth as a, 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 a as, as a mighty spirit that would come and change and shape us as we think about things like these. Lord, help us. Uh, let your divine word um, Uh, transform us into people that love you more. And would you make us trophies of grace like John Newton and Paul? We ask in your name. Amen.